today's guest is uh, Genesis P. Orridge. He is the man behind Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, and more, well, collaboratively behind all those aspects. He is a music extraordinary, extremely talented writer, and his newest album, Psychic TV 3, uh, Hell is Invisible, Heaven is Here, is a wonderful psychedelic romp that I think you all should check out. This is Inkstud, CITR 101.9 FM.
Hello. Hi there, Genesis. Yeah, that's me. Hi, my name's Robin. Hi, Robin. I'm calling from uh, Vancouver in the west coast of Canada. I know, I know where that is. I have my oldest friend from school lives in Vancouver. Oh, wow. Uh, a friend of mine called Alan Russell. He moved there from um, England, I think, in the early 70s. Oh, okay. Well, it's a, it's a lovely city to live in, I am. That's what he keeps telling us. Lady Jane and I want to come and visit for a few days and check it out, because... Um, he's always telling us that we enjoy it. Well, it's... Uh, that's, in fact, I wrote, I emailed him only last night. Saying, <laughs> as soon as this tour is over, uh, we're going to come and visit for a few days. Isn't well, funny? it's uh, a little synchronicity. There we go. He's always got that in my life. My life is so filled with it. We have a phrase that we say now in Psychic TV, which is just, of course. <laughs> <laughs> so many sort of synchronicities occur that we just kind of go... Of course. Well, I had one. Of course, it was number twenty-three. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm going on a bit. Uh, that, that, that's okay. No problem. I was going to say I even had my own little bit of a odd oddness on my way into the station today. Is uh, we're at the University of British Columbia, the campus, the radio station, and on my way, um, I didn't think there'd be very many people out here because it's a holiday in in BC. Yeah. Um, but there were all these Buddhist monks walking around. Oh, how fabulous! So it was. Uh, N- not the normal thing you see out here. I wonder what that was about. I, what I, I think it's uh, some kind of multicultural thing here at the university wow. today. There was all these. You probably know about my interest in Tibetan Buddhism and so on, don't you? Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a long time fan of your work. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I've uh, been listening to uh, TG and Psychic TV and many other related projects for many years. I used to about ten years ago. I used to be uh, a DJ in Vancouver of. I guess ah. what people called industrial music and stuff. So, isn't it incredible that who would have thought that that little group of people in Hackney, East London, in the back, the bottom of a factory, would come up with a name for what they were doing and call it industrial music? And now there's a global industry. It's it's quite fascinating because the the name. It, it just seemed like it kind of reflected where you're coming from at the time. Just that right. whole industrial English. Yeah, but it obviously it resonated everywhere. I mean, there's industrial music clubs in Thailand and Cambodia and Japan and Russia and Croatia. I mean, DJs, groups of musicians, magazines, record labels, shops, clothing. It's just insane. It, it's, it's neat how it's blossomed out into a lot of different things. I have a, a friend in a Frontline Assembly, and it's, it's, he just, is it, it's neat for him being like a Vancouver boy and then able to travel the world. And like right now, he's in Europe somewhere. Yeah. Doing some touring. One of the best bits of being in a band, I think, is traveling. Yeah. It's hard work, but it's also, it's really, it's really interesting just to see different cultures, and especially for me, because I try and write my lyrics as, as serious poetry as well. I'm always amazed how many people all over the world can understand not just the basic lyrics, but some of the metaphors and the the implications of what I'm saying as well. And I think uh, emotion's a big part of that, too. It has to be, doesn't it? It, it really it pulls people in, especially like something such a... Neubauten's a good example of that, that kind of culture clash with uh, their popularity they had in the 80s in Japan. Right. Where I'm sure they had no idea what they're saying, but it was still that kind of primal energy. Yeah, I love Neubauten. 
It's uh, fantastic. I was happy to finally see them. Even if it wasn't the whole group, I was able to see them uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Did you see, oh, did you see when they were doing their, um, it was kind of like their earlier music again? Um, they were hit, hitting metal and they, they were doing some of that. They were yeah, in bare feet singing away. And it was a good, it was a good show. Yeah, they did like a uh, a little enchantment on the floor against uh, Stevo, and that was like probably my favorite part of the show because it was more kind of concentrated on the earlier stuff, where it's just yeah, on the, like the early stuff very much. on the percussions. Right, that's what I was talking about. Yeah, yeah, and it was a good show. I liked the fact that they reintegrated all the percussion again. The, the neat thing for me is I actually saw it within two months of seeing Kraftwerk. So oh, such a neat... Another good, good to see, too. That was a, kind of a religious experience, I'd say. There was talk. Um, at the beginning of last year, there was a promoter in Europe who was trying to organize a series of six uh, concerts in six cities with Kraftwerk and Throbbing Gristle co-headlining. Oh, wow. Um, but sadly, it didn't quite happen. That, that would have been a good show. Yeah. It, it kicks myself for living in Vancouver on times like that. <laughs> so did you get the new uh, Psychic TV album? Yep. I've listened to it uh, many times now. Um, we'll go right into that. Psychic. This is PTV3, I guess. That's right. And uh, what makes it PTV3 instead of just Psychic TV? Um, basically... It's probably not exactly chronologically accurate, but that Psychic TV began, as you know, in 1981-1982, mm -hmm. the demise of Throbbing Gristle. And so I take that first phase with Levy still involved and Alex Ferguson as sort of Psychic TV part one. And then during the 80s, I had Fred Ginelli playing lead guitar and we were more exploring the techno house. The, the acid house the, era. The infinite beat. Mm -hmm. So that was PTV2, and then when we reformed Psychic TV um, this time, it just seemed to make sense to delineate that this was a new incarnation by calling it Psychic TV slash PTV3. Now, it's been about a 10-year gap, I guess, between... Is it 10 years or more than that? I'm not too sure. Between the last... Yeah. Between the last and the most recent. Um, why? Because you have so many other projects that you have going. There's <laughs> The Majesty, uh, Splinter Test. I guess Splinter Test has been gone for a while now. We haven't really released... Splinter Test got absorbed like an amoeba into The Majesty. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's now one of the cellular structures within The Majesty, I think. <laughs> well, Splinter Test is also like... Uh, I guess it's also your kind of... I guess a publishing concept. Yeah, it's more. That, I mean, it, we we want to actually start re-releasing and and creating more sampling CDs for people. One of them would be Teach Yourself PG, and another would be Teach Yourself PTV, and it would be kind of a library of all the really classic samples that we used in those different projects for people, so that they could take those and integrate them into their own music, and then give them a whole new. Um, resonance by doing that. It's going to be really interesting to see what would happen if people took certain really memorable little samples and put them into completely new music, whether it would... Uh, well, it's kind of like... Um, the ultimate remix, I guess? The ultimate remix, yeah, so that we'd go all over the world and we'd hear little bits of our stuff mixed in with all these other pieces of new music. <laughs> Um, one very much the virus. Yeah, well, it, virus. I, I find that interesting because I was uh, this morning on my way out to the station. I was reading the um, 
big disinformation article in the Book of Lies. Oh, yeah. The one where you talk about uh, Burroughs and doing um, the cut-up stuff and doing recordings and overlaying recordings. And what, one thing I found I was really struck by was the... Um, 1968 Chicago stuff that he was talking about. Yeah. The recording of the riots and the convention. Now, something like that, where I just found really interesting. Will there be any kind of further exploration of that? Like, possibly trying to release stuff like that so people can play with something like that? Um, we have got uh, all the existing copies of all the existing cassette tapes from that era, but it has to be coordinated with William Burroughs communications with mm-hmm. James Grauholtz, who we do get on well with. Um, in a way, though, the, the more important thing is to, at some point, remind young people of some of those strategies that, that were being used in those days, taking tape recorders out into events and recording trouble noises like machine guns and um, police sirens and ambulance noises and explosions and walking around in a crowd playing those and seeing what sort of results you get, whether people get on edge or start to, to panic and so on. That just, just to remind people, most of all, that that is being used now by government. Mm-hmm. We've heard about the um, sieges of different embassies where they play heavy men. Yeah, in uh, Panama. They use all sorts of total William Burroughs noise, noise experiments. So it's being used as crowd control, or what they call non-lethal weapons now. It's also a torture technique, too. Of course. Well, there's been quite a lot of uh, human rights complaints about people being tortured with cut-up techniques and so on. Sleep deprivation and, and cut-up tapes uh, are a very clever way of disorienting people. And that's... Uh, sorry? Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it's really important for people to remain aware of these things, and not just have it consigned to uh, nostalgia or the past, but realize that, in a way, Burroughs and Geisen were very prophetic in mm-hmm. their descriptions of what control would become. For example, there's a, a Burroughs short story called Ali's Smile, where it talks about... Oh, that's... yeah. ...about there, there being an actor as the uh, President of the United States, which was long before Ronald Reagan, <laughs> long before um, Schwarzenegger as the governor of California. In fact, when I first read that, I was thinking, how oh, it's kind of ludicrous, it's very funny, but that's absurd. <laughs> and then, lo and behold, it happened. So, you have to be very careful with, with um, one, the way that you play with culture. And most of all, you have to have a very good memory and awareness of just what all these techniques are and how they're used. Uh, editing is, is really an invisible language of control. Now, um, I've noticed, getting back to your album, the latest album, uh, is you use that in the later part of the album, there's a lot of the cut up, like putting in, uh, I guess, field sounds mm-hmm. into it. Like, you're talking about, like, the, I think it was the helicopter noises, the gunfire noises. Right. Sirens. Yeah. Um, yeah, the one right, right, right in the eye of the sky, that one. Kuka Chalice, we call it. Yeah. In Hookah Chalice at the very beginning, we, we, yes, we use all those trouble noises at the beginning <laughs> and uh, subway noises. And it was, that's an example of synchronicity. We, we made, we recorded Hookah Chalice and then just a few weeks later there were the bombs on the subway in London. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd already been using helicopters and sirens and subway noises <laughs> to find the gap. In fact, 
we were so disturbed by the synchronicity that we, we took out one sample, which was the actual mic, the gap on the subway in London. This is a very London... It was just too real, and we didn't want people to think it was a comment on that particular event. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's surprising. Well, Burroughs used to say, let's cut it up and see what it really says. And um, it's surprising what you find out. But... Um, on Hell is Invisible, Heaven in Here, there's another way of working with, with cut-ups, which I think you mentioned when you said feeling as well. Mm -hmm. um, on Milk Baba, the last track, the very ambient one, where yeah. just, uh, not thinking words. Which is actually what I was listening to when I saw the Buddhist monks. Oh my God, now I see why you said it was synchronicity. Because we were visiting Kathmandu, oh, wow. day, myself and Morrison Edley, the drummer, and... We went up into the Himalayas, into the mountains, because uh, we were recording Buddhist monks, for example, <laughs> in situ, in the Himalayas, in monasteries and so on. And we were staying in a guest house, uh, which, to get to it, you had to cross this quite large lake, and the only way across were these rowboat taxis. So we waited for the, the boat, and we got in the boat. The guy rowing the boat had his two children with him, his two daughters, who had just been to school for the day. And to get home, they had to row across the lake too. So we were sitting in there, and Lady J started recording the sound of the boat being rowed across the lake. And then the two little girls started to sing um, Nepalese children's songs. And that's the sound that you can actually hear uh, in the background on Milk Barber. And you can also hear very faintly Tibetan monks playing uh, thigh-bone trumpets in the distance in the temple. If you listen to it again, you'll hear that too. Wow. And that's actually um, a real-time recording of crossing the lake in the Himalayas up right by, you know, the, the home of Buddhism, really. Um, and, of course, it wasn't planned that they would start singing, but it was a beautiful moment. And the milk barber is actually a real holy person who lives in Kathmandu. And the milk barber's now in the late, his late 70s, but for 25 or more years, all he's taken as nourishment is tea, milk, and sugar. And he has these dreadlocks that are more than 20 feet long, curled up in a huge mound on his head. And he's one of the beautiful holy people that we became friends with. And went to, we used to go and sit and talk with him and drink tea, and he would play us these beautiful songs and chant all these Hindu prayers. We recorded all of that too, and we were hoping when we began that track that we would use some of the milk barber singing on it but in fact it seemed so perfect at the point we got to that we just left it alone mm -hmm. that's, that's but it's almost um, an indicator of what could come next you know Oh. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's I'm curious about is um, with this latest album, it, it sounded like it's kind of an amalgamation of different aspects of your work. Like, uh, surfacely, it's a psychedelic rock album, um, but then when you jump into it, it, it's like you're putting in different aspects of previous uh, PTV um, ideas and kind of bring it to fruition. Mm-hmm. Um, like the idea going into creating this album well uh, Morrison Edley was friends with Lady J from teenage times they were both really good friends and when when Lady J and I moved to Brooklyn in New York in 96 we started going around there sometimes for dinner and Edley was saying it's a real shame that you don't do psychic TV anymore and I said well the music business is just too corrupt and too draining it's just too much aggravation to get the creativity made is just too painful and he said but it's you, you write such good songs and I said yeah he said no really really you do so I said well prove it to me so he burned me a CD of his favorite psychic TV songs which was an amalgamation of all kinds of different aspects and he said listen to this and see what you think so I started to play it and for the first time, I was able to hear it as if I was just another person in the audience, you know, another person listening. And I realized that not only did I think it was, he was right that there were some good songs, but also that he picked out my favorite aspects of psychic TV. So we used that as a template and decided that that would be the unashamedly uh, pleasurable new incarnation at this time psychic tv would be first and foremost all the things that made me happy <laughs> music and that that would be the way to go just to do something that i enjoyed listening to all the time over and over again something that wasn't so difficult that it was uh, a big decision to to listen to it again something that was actually attractive and that, that's where it began really and then once I'd confessed that I enjoyed most of all the, the high-fidelic Godstar era, and mm-hmm. that was my favorite music by anyone, that kind of style, Pink Floyd and Captain Beefheart, Incredible String Band and Nick Drake, that there must be a way to amalgamate all these different favorite types of music into something that was both um, knowingly referring to the musical past, but also fresh and 21st century as well, a kind of hard-edged psychedelic. So it's it's really my confessional. This is the album that tells you what I really, really like to do and listen to. <laughs> it's got bits of The Doors, it's got bits, bits of The Velvet Underground, bits of Beefheart, um, quite unashamedly referred. And I think that's what makes it a little bit more accessible and I think it, it makes it easier for people to approach it. Have you noticed uh, a re- the recent resurgent of uh, psychedelic music? You know, I hadn't until we were we, we recorded this. We started just over two years ago and finished it a year ago. And then it took us a whole year to find someone who would let us release it. <laughs> because at the time we finished it, there was still a, a kind of... I don't know, what were people into then? That indie, indie rock that was more kind of confessional and... Um, Sappy. About, you know, being let down, boys confessing their emotions, emo, I guess. Yeah. Um, 
So we weren't really listening to many new groups except for the AAS who were friends of ours. Um, but as we, once it got released and around the time it released, people started saying, did you know there's been a resurgence of psychedelic music everywhere? <laughs> well, it was quite <laughs> interesting. We've been told of lots of bands that we've really, we really like. You know, there's a band called Entrance, another band called the Black Angels, um, all kinds of people. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's a really good thing because laptops and techno have basically been driven into the ground mm -hmm. and they're not full of joy they're not celebratory they're, they're, they're not organic yeah exactly and i think people are really ready for something that's organic and emotional and has a kaleidoscope of ideas and feeling so um yeah i mean i i, I was talking to somebody the other day on a radio station, funny enough, and I was saying to them that I've always thought all the music I've done was psychedelic. I always thought of Throbbing Christmas as psychedelic, um, in, in a way that, because I began making music in the 60s, mm -hmm. and I've never stopped. So in one sense, Psychic TV and PTV3 is one of the few uh, bands that began in the 60s and is still going. And there's no question that that's, that's an era that's influenced my, my approach to life, really. But be, between the psychedelic culture and then the, the more cynical um, appraisal of people like the beatniks, mm -hmm. I think that's where I have a, an interesting mix. I come from it from more than one angle, from performance art, from literature, and from music. We just played at PS1 yesterday, on Saturday, rather. And PS1, they do an event called Warm Up uh, each summer. And for the last 10 years, it's been just techno and DJs. Mm -hmm. And then this Saturday, for the first time, they tried out a live psychedelic band, which was Psychic TV. We had 5,000 people, and nobody left. <laughs> Even though we were playing the whole album, so there were some quite difficult tracks too. Like In the Body isn't easy. Um, and in the body, that's an crazy. We got three encores. Wow! And the and this this was a basically an audience who didn't know who we were. Completely different audience to our usual audience. Um, and that was very interesting because that that told me that we are right. You know that there's no question that there's a hunger for a real experience again. And I guess that that that's neat because, I mean, they're part of being Genesis Peorage is you go into a performance and people are going to go just because of who you are. Um, but, yeah, that aspect of just playing to a, a blank slate and being able to... I mean, it was actually, for the first time, I was, I was a little nervous. I was thinking, these people come here to dance, to techno. What are they going to make of this, you know? They don't even need to go and see bands. So, and they certainly looked a bit puzzled at the beginning. They were sort of looking at us like, what the hell is this? There's seven people on stage with instruments. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we had videos in the background, you know, but within 10, 15 minutes, they were going crazy. And in fact, the organizers actually came downstairs. We played for about nearly two hours nonstop. And they came down, we'd done two encores, and they said, you've got to go back up, Jen. There's going to be a riot if you don't play another song. <laughs> So that's amazing. And two, we converted thousands of people in one evening. And, uh, and, I, and it wasn't because of any you know, previous knowledge of who we were. It was just straight ahead. The music worked. 
And that's exactly what this album was for. So I, I'm feeling quite pleased with myself right now because it, it tends to suggest that our, 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 our reading of the undercurrent of culture was correct, that there is really a, a tremendous appetite for um, revelation and celebration and the expression of joy and release and a sense of freedom and safety and, and pleasure. And that, that in, a, in a culture that we're in right now, that everything is closing down and becoming so dark, becomes liberational politics again. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It's, it's... I always get on my little, my little uh, soapbox. <laughs> I was going to say soapbox. Well, this interesting aspect is, um, I'm curious what you think of... I was going through, and I think it was the Fractured Garden, and the liner notes you're talking about the future of technology and being able to disseminate so many uh, images and uh, ideas. What do you think now with the with things like YouTube and the internet being so expansive? And like even a year ago, wouldn't even think it would get to the point where it is now, where we've kind of shattered the infallibility. Um, like any politician, the second they do something that's, you know not on the on tape as they want to be on tape but something unusual it, it it's right out there for all of us to see it's, that's a good point it's funny too because I also wrote things about uh, basically prophesying the internet with the uh, splinter, splinter test electric newspapers too um, whilst I, I'm I'm always in favor of anything that um, creates the kind of sort of uh fragmenting of control that, that's happened because of YouTube. For example, corporate music business is now really staggering mm -hmm. because people have just bypassed them. And I think that's incredibly healthy. And and people are, are beginning to vote with, with their, their mouths in terms of what they want to listen to and what gives them pleasure. And they can bypass the controls of corporations completely. And I think we've not even seen... Any near, anywhere near the amount of impact it's going to have on the way that music is, is commercialized. Um, having said that, I'm also concerned about the, uh, the insidious inertia that's created by people assuming that because they've got computers and they access the internet and they can have infinite choice, that that in and of itself is going to change anything because it won't. In a way, people are being trained to, to live in hallucinations. And when they go on the internet, everything is virtual and, and is comfortable. And they're not encouraging themselves to have physical, emotional, and uh, material experience. For example, there's a big difference between going to Amazon.com, putting in the name of an author, clicking a button, and receiving a book mm -hmm. in the post. And going outside the house, getting on a bus or in a car or on a bicycle or walking, and searching through lots and lots of shops, walking through different streets, having a coffee in a cafe, finally going into a bookshop, looking at all these other books and seeing something you didn't even know existed and buying that and holding it in your hand and then taking it home and discussing it with people, maybe with the guy in the shop, maybe with a waitress in the cafe or whatever it might be. You'll meet people, you'll see things happening all the time on the journey. You'll have thoughts and, and fears and pleasures. All of that's being lost for a click. Yeah. Convenience. And I think that side of 
experience is the most valuable, that physical interaction with real people at real events. And I, I think that's the danger that, that the, the backlash of the freedom of the internet is that the corporations have witnessed the, the, the strategy of young people and are now trying to co-opt it again, as they always do. And, and by starving us of, of direct experience, they're training us to become immobile and inert and just to be consumers. And as you know, um, I think it's Rupert Murdoch bought MySpace. Mm -hmm. Rupert Murdoch is well known to be one of the most uh, right-wing, conservative, media uh, kingpins, politically minded people on the planet with a massive conglomerate of, of newspapers that proselytize polarized, bigoted ways of thinking. And there must be a reason that they think, people like him, that it's worth only my space. What is it? A, it's money, and B, it's control. Yeah. Controlling in some way or another the input and output. And so... Um, I would advise your listeners to always choose to go to a live concert, always choose to go to a shop, and always choose to talk about whatever it is they like with friends and strangers. To maintain actual experience is, is a very, very radical act in this day and age. What, one thing um, related to that is I've noticed uh, nowadays I mean, record sales just aren't what they used to be <laughs> at all. And again, yeah. <laughs> and it, one thing as a listener is that you see the emphasis now placed on a live show because that's where the musicians are going to make their money so I think like an odd byproduct that I appreciate is the fact that I can see more performances now yeah. and it, it's, it's I, I think creating more of a kind of involved culture with musicians because they're doing things like MySpace <laughs> and, and kind of being more open to interaction with uh, their audience. Definitely. But as you know, we've always had interaction with our audience. With Tom and Gristle, the first album had a, a questionnaire in it asking people all about what they were and what they liked and their interests and their ideas. So that was in 1976. We were already asking people to tell us about themselves and we had mailing lists and we kept in touch with people and sent them free newsletters. And then with Psychic TV, we had the Temple of Psychic Youth, which at one point had 10,000 active in, uh, people involved doing rituals and research and sharing ideas and having campouts, meetings and activating with animal rights and squatters' rights and so on, um, becoming politically involved. It was Topi that paid for me to go to Kathmandu the first time in 1991-92, where we used royalties from our records to feed uh, refugees, lepers, and beggars uh, in Kathmandu every day, all through the winter for six months. We would feed anyone who came to the soup kitchen, sometimes three to eight hundred people uh, three times a day. Wow. Um, so... It's very important, I think, that people don't start to just use MySpace or the new organic uh, situation for their own ego gratification. Mm -hmm. I'm a great believer that, that it should be immediately used as a means of changing the world outside. You know, we've always had that, that idea of change your bedroom, then change the house, then change your street, then change your town. 
and so on. You know, keep on changing the environment, keep on being involved in the environment. I have a friend that describes them as vanity sites. <laughs> That's good. I like that. i 
Almost a kiss Almost a kiss the discussion of uh, audience participation is uh, you recently with uh, TG released the Desert Shore sessions. How are they out now? But my friend has it at home. Oh my god, I, was I don't have one yet. <laughs> I was thinking about that this morning too. I was thinking of emailing Sneezer saying, hey, what's up to those 12 CDs? <laughs> Oh, good. Have you heard it then? Uh, I haven't had a chance to. Um, unfortunately, I'm like bogged down in the land of school, but I, I can't wait to, to listen to it. Uh, my friend was describing like it, it's so personal. I mean, there's parts on there of uh, Cozy giving you crap for not having your notes. Yes. And, and things like that. Um, so it's like kind of really neat to really see like the whole process. <laughs> I don't remember that. She gives me a hard time all the time. <laughs> <laughs> It's what old friends do best, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, the question I was going to ask is, how was that as an experience, uh, being so open about the recording process? Oh, God, it was so stressful. I think that's probably the most intense um, creative experience I've ever had. Because 
sleazy Chris and Cozy for several weeks before we played at the ICA. Um, and I should explain that for your listeners. What yeah. Happened. Yeah. And what happened was that Throb and Gristle decided to do something different as we always try. And so we, we were booked at the ICA, which is a modern art gallery in London. Where, uh, cool. We did our first yeah. public performance in 1976. And I was actually banned for life after that. <laughs> so, <laughs> records of Civilization was the term for that performance. Uh, right, that was when we were dubbed the Records of Civilization. So there were six separate um, sessions of three hours. And the idea was to record a cover version of the entire Desert Shore album by Nico, which was first released in 1970. The other three, Sleazy, Chris and Cozy, recorded the music, new music for every track uh, during the, the two months beforehand, but they didn't let me hear any of the new music at all. So the first day that I went into the ICA, they'd set up uh, a typical throbbing gristle ad hoc recording studio on big tables, They'd made a tiny little vocal booth that was three foot square, and inside was my microphone and a music stand with the lyrics, Nico's lyrics on it, and a halogen lamp. There was no air conditioning because it ruined the, the sound quality, it interfered with the sound, so it was incredibly hot. And 300 people uh, were allowed to buy tickets to witness our recording session each time six boxes, 300 people. And at the beginning of each session, the other three would play a Nico song from the album and then play me their backing music. And then I would have to learn the lyrics, figure out where to place the lyrics in the new music, try and perform the lyrics to the best of my ability and to honor and respect Nico mm-hmm. her singing to do something that was equally as intense and personal and to be happy with the result which is incredibly intense when you've got three, 300 people watching you plus everybody in TG had microphones on so that anything that was being said was going out through the PA so that the audience could hear all the uh, usual comments and remarks that we made to each other there would be times when we'd be rewinding the uh, recording and we'd be discussing what to do next. If we weren't sure what to do next, just to re- relax a bit, we would do a jam session on a, ry- a rhythm. So we'd also be creating instrumental music in real time in front of people. So there were 12 hours altogether of that, that experience. And as I really adore Nico's album, Desert Shore, I was terrified of not doing it justice. That was the biggest stress for me, was just being terrified of not making it as good as it could be. And having to do that in front of people with no chance to come back and try again, that's really hard. And then on top of that, there's two songs in German and one in French. And I hadn't learned or spoken those languages since 1964. (laughs) So I had to also remember how to pronounce German and French and be convincing as if I knew what it said. <laughs> Basically enunciating the, uh, the the lyrics. Yeah. Just mimicking. So the plan... For- it was very, very tough. Very tough. But from what I've heard, Sleazy's emailed me since and he said that the vocals are great, so... 
And there is one one upside, which is that I do. Nico isn't a technical singer. No. She's a very idiosyncratic vo voice vocalist, and I'm also very idiosyncratic. So, in a way, it was at least it had the potential to be a good match because we both have very uh, easily recognizable voices. And um, well, all I can say is I, I did absolutely the very best I could. <laughs> and it remains to be seen how it fits into the music and whether it works. But I have a feeling it's going to be okay. As the next uh, step in uh, the uh, ongoing dialogue of Throbbing Gristle. Yeah. But of course, you were referring to the 12 CD set. What, what Sleazy decided to do was record everything, unedited the whole, the whole session, 12 hours. And... Um, Oh, hang on, what's six? What's six? No, I guess it was two hours each then. Maybe it was three. I'm not sure. But anyway, on twelve discs, there's the entire unedited session with silences, tea breaks, comments, <laughs> arguments, bickering, singing, trying more than once to do a line, etc. Joking, talking to the audience, explaining things. It's all on there with nothing removed, so that people could finally truly witness the way that we work from scratch um continuing with uh I got a couple more Throbbing Girls questions I know that uh you kind of Throbbing Girls as a group you answer stuff collectively so I'm not going to try and ask too many yeah. of that um because uh, another DJ at the station is hoping to be doing that interview but um actually Coombe Transmissions um uh, the pre- Crystal Project. Is there any plans to release any of the uh, video work? Um, not right now. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's three videos that exist because Coombe was basically 1969 through till 1976. And there were very, very few portable video cameras in those days. And the ones there were were real to real. So there was only one time when we really had access to video equipment and that was at the Royal College of Art where we did three different performances over that period of time. And then there was one other in Chicago in 1975, 76, that was it, yeah, 76. So there's only three that were ever videoed at all. Um, From what I understand, they're pretty uh, rare to come by. Yeah, yeah, they are. My friend had seen one which had you on a swing. No, no, it was cozy on the swing. Oh, it was cozy on the swing. Yeah, I was dressed as a schoolgirl. Yeah, he said something about you in, in a schoolgirl's outfit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But apparently well, the... It's a little graphic. <laughs> <laughs> I should have mentioned we are in Canada, so you don't have to worry too much about what oh, you say. Okay. <laughs> uh, with me on a satin pillow uh, with a vibrator in my... Anus and masturbating until I have an organ. Okay. Mm. And cozy on the swing is the clock. We used to use a swing as a clock. Like a pendulum. Okay. So that symbolized time passing. And my dog Tanith was there, so you have a kind of, every now and then you see a little Alsatian dog wandering around. <laughs> <laughs> Robert and Tom Wilson passed away um, yeah. recently. And I know he was a pretty big influence. I mean, even just the heavy use of 23s. I mean, he was a big proponent of discussion of 23. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any comments on his passing? Oh, I, 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 the main thing I would say is that, that it's, it seems to me very, very sad that Robert Anton Wilson is 
is fading from the, the countercultural memory far too quickly. And I think a lot of people, because they're so uh, plugged into the internet, are missing out on, on the discoveries that they would make if they checked out people like Robert Anton Wilson, because his ideas, some of the most uh, prophetic and radical from, from the sort of 60s and 70s era that, that came out of America. He's very much a homegrown American icon who, who understood the irony of the political system here and the irony of the, the sometime arrogance of American culture when it's en masse. And I think that combined with his, his ability to see a, a magical undertone, mm -hmm. the way that reality works, is a really healthy, um, healthy vision. And it, it would be very, very sad if, if people just let go of his memory because they're too lazy to go out and search for it. So I would encourage people to, particularly, if nothing else, read the, uh, the Illuminati trilogy. The one with uh, Robert Shea. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great commentary on America. It's, it's yeah, very very relevant. I remember reading it, and it really really hit me. And then uh, following it up with the Cosmic Trigger. And he was a very a very honourable, very determined man who who never gave in to the pressure of the the establishment. Who, right to the end, was prepared to be sarcastic and reveal the idiocy of the status quo and the, the vile hypocrisy of the people in power. It's always a healthy thing to do. In a similarity to you, he he would take like I guess uh, different aspects and put put them together, like really like the heavy influence of uh, Philip K. Dick and uh, um, Timothy Leary and stuff. Well, I, I think that's there's no question in the 21st century that, that, that synthetic art, synthetic literature is is the only thing that, that makes sense. We live in such um, such media turmoil at the moment and there's so much fragmentation and intersection and so much available and so little explanation that, that the only way to comment on or investigate uh, consensus reality or as I like to call it nonsensus reality <laughs> is, is to, to uh, absorb the idea of the cut up into one's daily perception of life if you don't do that it's not going to make any sense everything is now just a complete maelstrom of cut-ups of all different kinds and the only way to to navigate that and stay sane is to is to appreciate the techniques that you're you're suffering um <laughs> so much food for thought right yeah oh gosh um i, I do want to ask some questions about pandrogyny okay um i mean it, you're right out there really pushing um new ideas, new ways of looking at things. Um, linguistically, how would one refer to the pandrogyny? Like, I, I know when you have it written out, you have the S slash uh, and then H-E. Yeah. But how speaking? Um, well, we, we, don't, we, don't, we don't try and, and really... Um constrain people in terms of how they talk about the pandrogyne. But the pandrogyne, the positive pandrogyne, to, to explain to your listeners as briefly 
as I can. Lady Jane myself, uh, after being together for quite a few years, decided to extend the Burroughs-Geisen idea of the third mind. The third mind is what Burroughs and Geisen refer to when they would collaborate with literature and blend their literature together with cut-ups. They would say it didn't belong to either of them. It was created by a third mind. So Lady Jane and I decided to take our physical bodies and by means of uh, cosmetic surgery and wearing the same clothes and doing our hair the same and uh, experiencing things as much as possible as two halves of one whole, we called that the pandragine, that third being that was created by the two of us together is the pandragine. So it only exists when the two of us are together doing something. When mm -hmm. we're not together, we're only half of a pandragine. Um, we either just say the pandragine or she, because the main uh, thrust of our attack on, on the way that things are, what material reality there is, is that it's quite overtly infiltrated by patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And patriarchy is, is a prehistoric behavior pattern, which was the valid survival technique tens of thousands of years ago. That was that the males would be violent and aggressive in order to protect the small clan, the tribe, from the brutal prehistoric environment, from predators, from weather, from cold, from lack of food. They would also protect the babies and children simply to maintain the existence of the tribe. So there was a certain justification for male aggression and male behavior patterns then. However, what's happened is that we've continued to behave exactly the same ways, but the environment we live in has completely changed into a futuristic science fiction future environment. And that basic, aggressive, vindictive, um, intimidating male-based behavior is now completely and utterly irrelevant and in fact destructive. And it's the reason that we now live in so much fear is that those, be those prehistoric behaviors, which are now redundant, are still being applied to socio-political situations worldwide. And that creates polarization, which creates fear of the other, creates fear of anything different, and the way to deal with that is always violence. Now, that is no longer the way to survive. In fact, the human species will not survive unless we change our behavior. And to change behavior, is to change the, the, the means of control. And that's what Burroughs set me as a test before he passed away, was to find a way to short-circuit control. Jay and I have decided that the basic problem is binary systems, male, female, right, wrong, Christian, Muslim, black, white, rich, poor, consuming and greedy and so on. Dialectical opposites. Yeah, that that is the root cause of all the uh, fear and potential destruction of the species. That it's time for the human species to get up off its collective ass and evolve and catch up with its technology. The human body is not sacred. The genetic uh, program is not sacred. Nothing is sacred except the ability to evolve, grow, and become wise. 
So consciousness must change, the biological structure of beings must change, and we must learn how to control DNA so that we can program ourselves to become non-violent, and so on. And so when you get down to the real center of androgyny, it's an incredibly important evolutionary strategy. And it's basically very um, altruistic. It's, it's primary purpose is the survival of the human species into a form where we can be proud of ourselves instead of ashamed of our behavior patterns. Now, in the past, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I've, I'm totally going to flow... No, it totally makes sense. I'm going to flow with this. Because um, in the past, you, you, you've always pushed the boundaries. You're all about pushing the boundaries. And most of the time, people have been, you know, oh, yeah, he's pursing himself. Neat, that's great, that's awesome. But this has probably been the most... Uh, brought the most reaction from people. Oh, yeah. And it's... Uh, one friend described it as, like, this really, like, homophobic response from people. Yes. Meanwhile, it... it there's nothing gay about it. <laughs> no, nothing intrinsically gay about it at all, although it can be gay-friendly. It, it, yeah. Um, I mean, transgendered communities are one of the most uh, isolated, um, ostracized... Absolutely. ...in society so, right now. To choose to enter the public perception of the transgendered community is, is to take a great risk. Um, they're the most ostracized, the most uh, vilified, often the most physically attacked. Um, they get rejected by their families and friends. They find getting employment difficult. And so to align ourselves with... And even having their own uh, existence questioned constantly. Of course. Um, but one of the misnomers that people have about transgender people is that they're trying to change their identity in order to have sex with what was their same mm -hmm. gender. And of course, that's not true. There are many, 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 many heterosexual transgender people. And we've met many, a lot of those. In fact, several people work with us who are also pandragines. Um, but we wanted to take a phrase and make a word that didn't have any kind of legacy or any kind of ongoing... Um, gender baggage with it that people could align themselves with in a fresh way and see that it's about the, the whole human species and survival and having said that of course all the transgendered people in the world are our brothers and sisters inevitably in this fight because I think that they are instinctively and sometimes consciously rejecting the, the current uh, human species situation they're, they're groping towards the same realization that we found, which is that if we don't radically alter our biological imperative, we're doomed. So to us, all transgendered people are the vanguard of a future evolution of the human species and should be respected for that, for that courage to take that step. I think that's the perfect ending point. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've just uh, summed up a lot of uh, what I see happening with PTV3 and the performances, and really like uh, even in the title, um, the heaven, hell is invisible, heaven is here. Yeah, it's a very gnostic title, of course. Um, and it also is, is implying that the responsibility for creating a future heaven is with us here. You know, that, that hell is invisible. Hell is this thing that people talk about after you're dead. It's conceptual. Yeah. And heaven, heaven is here. 
and heaven is what we make. We can make heaven here. We have the we have the technology. We have more than enough technology to control, reprogram, re-edit reality, and make this the most beautiful, fantastic planet that one could ever find anywhere in the universe. Where we would be more than happy to welcome any alien to see just how how perfectly we got ourselves together, and that we were living in peace and harmony, and we were all these divine hermaphrodites that reflected every kind of perfection. That would be that would be my goal. Um, <laughs> Not much to ask, is it? <laughs> we can do it. I think we can. Now, um, when I play the interview, is there any particular songs you'd like me to accompany? Oh, um, well, when you mentioned TG, I love Almost a Kiss. Almost a Kiss? Of the new album, yeah. That's my favorite new TG song. Okay. I also like The Worm Waits Its Turn. What's the song? The Worm Waits Its Turn, the last song on the TG album. And that, okay. Lady J. Co. wrote that with me, that one, so... Special. So you're very happy. Like, hmm? No, go ahead. I like, and, and on uh, the new Psychic TV, PTV3 album, I honestly like every song. <laughs> um, I, I believe it's the best album I've ever recorded, the most perfect, the most complete, the most meticulous. Some songs took me 10 years before I was happy with the, the lyric and the melody. Well, one of them, uh, In the Body, I guess, is uh, from the 80s, my yeah. friend was telling me. And it began as an instrumental section on Dreams Less Sweet and kept on developing, um, which is, a, a, I think, a more, not such a common technique for most bands, but uh, I'll come back to loops and rhythms and samples of my own music and then start to play with them and improvise on them and then sometimes find lyrics and continue to keep returning to them until they feel that they're really telling a story that's complete and then they become recorded it's the a, album is full of completed stories it's a continuous development yeah well thank you very much Genesis once again I'm really happy that you took the time out to chat with me this has been one of my most exciting interviews I've uh, had the chance to do thank you normally uh it's a uh, comic. The, the radio shows are only about comic books, but I'm one of the most uh, knowledgeable at the station about uh, the industrial music culture and stuff. So it was. Uh, well, don't classify psychic TV PDV three as just industrial because it's very much psychedelic garage rock. Now. Oh, I know, I know, and uh, I actually don't even listen to much uh, industrial anymore. <laughs> no, neither do I. It's. Uh, I think it's time for celebration and joy and pleasure. I think it's really important. Less nihilism. Yeah, less nihilism, more positivism. Smiles. I want to see smiles on faces when they leave our concert. Right back to Leary. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Smile squared. <laughs> Thank you very much, Genesis. And uh, if you have time, I, I'd hope to meet you in Vancouver, but I understand uh, tour schedules when you do eventually get here in November yeah. are quite... Uh, but we'll be in Seattle, which isn't so far away. Oh, when are you playing Seattle? Um, oh, God, I know. Okay. And it's on our MySpace page. <laughs> I dread to say, I have to say that, though. <laughs> 
Nate Max, who's our guitarist, Triple X Max. Um, he does the MySpace page. And let me just see if it's on this pile here. Well, I'll get the, I'll get the information and uh, yeah, if you can find it on there and tell people when we're in Seattle. But I know it's quite soon. I was actually planning on going to Seattle that week, so I may tr- try and. Uh, oh, good. And uh, try and come and say hi. I will. And uh, okay. thank. Thanks, Robin. Thank you very much, and keep uh, keep doing what you do. <laughs> Thank you, Genesis. You know, after after Saturday, I was I came off stage and I thought, wow, fifty seven years old, and we can still get five thousand people jumping up and down. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> as long as we can do that. I'm going to keep going. A, a little smile to end it all. Yeah, lots of love. Lots of thank you very much. Take care. Bye. Bye. That was Genesis P. Orridge, uh, Genesis Briar P. Orridge, I should say, um, from Psychic TV, Throbbing Gristle fame, and incredible talent. I am a huge fan of his work, and uh, I think you all need to look into it. Um, for those Ink Studs listeners that are like, wait, this wasn't comics, here's my one little comics connection for you. Um, I actually got a couple. Uh, uh, this book he did, the William Burroughs birthday book, has a nice comic strip in the middle by this guy, Casper Williams. I don't know it. But it's very similar to, uh, I guess, uh, Ed, if you're listening, Ed Piscor. Um, it's kind of like uh, a little similar to your stuff. Um, and actually, Burroughs, Ed Piscor is doing a uh, book with Harvey Picar all about the beats. So that should be very interesting. Um, Brian Talbot told me that his first book um, was actually distributed by, Gen- by Genesis back in the 70s. So I think it's Brainstorm was the name of his book. So... It all comes one full circle together. Thank you for listening. This is Inkstuts. See you next week where my guest will be, Farrell Delrymple. Thank you.
message anymore. Oh, yeah.